In 2023, we're asking our readers and listeners to join Pellicle in helping us to become profitable. Every month, we pay writers, illustrators and photographers a fair rate for their work. And this is all thanks to our sponsor, Hotburns and Black, and the hundreds of people who subscribe via Patreon. We want you to help us hit 500 subscribers so that we can create a sustainable resource for Pellicle and so that we can continue publishing more articles and more podcasts like this one. We can only keep this magazine and podcast going through the support of our readers. So if this sounds like something you can help with, then head on over to patreon.com forward slash mag to sign up today. We're determined to make one of the best drinks magazines out there, and we can only do this with your help. Thanks for listening. And now let's get on with the show. Hello and welcome back to the Pellicle Podcast with me, Matthew Curtis, and our fourth and final instalment of panel discussions from last year's Fine Fest. This episode, we're talking about one of my favourite subjects and probably yours, Cascale. Specifically, we're asking, is this resurgence we're seeing in traditional British styles like bitter and mild, just an online thing, a flash in the pan, or is it something genuine, something that's here to stay and permeating into the mainstream? Or is it something that never went away in the first place? I'm joined by an absolutely fantastic panel for this one, which includes Mark Wellsby, who is the owner and head brewer of Runaway Brewery in Stockport, Laura Rangeley, who is the marketing manager at Abbeydale Brewery in Sheffield, and Malcolm Downey, who's the head brewer at Fine Ales. This is a slightly longer panel discussion than the others because it was the last one of the day and so I just let it run so we could talk about as much as possible because some really good talking points come up in this such as is premiumization a genuine way to revive the cast category which if you look at it from a statistical point of view has been falling in terms of volume of sales over the past few years. We discuss the price of a pint, how much should a pint cost. And we also have a chat about the importance of using English ingredients. A lot of breweries are talking about sustainability at the moment. So could focusing on the revival of the British hop sector and focusing more on British malt be a part of this drive for a more sustainable future for breweries? It's a really great discussion that I hope you enjoy as much as I did hosting it. As this is the last of these panel discussions for this year, I want to say a few thank yous. Firstly, to Ian Smith, who up until recently was the marketing manager at Fine Ales. And it's thanks to him that we host these talks. He helped me organise them. He helped me organise my panellists. And for that, I can't thank you enough. I'm sad that I don't get to work with you on it this year. But I'm also grateful that you'll be up in the Glen and we can have a great time without the stress of work getting in the way. And I'm also really looking forward to working with the new marketing manager at Fine Ales, AD Fenwick, on this year's panels. Don't forget, tickets are available to FineFest at finefest.com. I'd also like to say thank you to Jamie Dillap, who is the managing director at Fine Ales. Without their support, we wouldn't be able not just to run these panel talks, but to run Pellicle, because Fine Ales are a pro-tier Patreon supporter, one of over 30 businesses who are signed up as a subscriber who give us a bit of money every month, and we invest that money back into Pellicle. You don't have to be a business to join. You can subscribe from as little as £1 or $1.50 a month, and that money goes back into running the magazine. We're currently working to make Pellicle profitable using Patreon, which means that we'll be able to secure a sustainable future for our magazine and this podcast. So if you're able to support us, whether you're an individual or a business, head to patreon.com forward slash mag and there's hopefully a tier that suits you. Don't worry if you can't afford it though, this podcast and the website will remain free to access for as long as the magazine is around. I'd also like to thank Jamie's brother Mungo, who sorted out all the sound equipment for this event. So thank you to everyone at Fine Ales, and I'm really looking forward to seeing you in the Glen later this year. 
Right, let's get into this discussion. This one is called The Bitter End. Are traditional cast beer styles back for good, or are they just a flash in the pan? Let's have a listen. Today we're going to be talking about uh, one of my favourite subjects, uh, cask ale, uh, the glorious cask ale. But we're going to look at whether this new resurgence that certainly we've seen on social media uh, into bitters and milds, and this is the, just for the people listening at home, this is being recorded, uh, this is, the room is packed full of people ready to listen about cask, and that's a, that's a great thing. Um, but yes, we're going to see if the recent resurgence of uh, styles like bitter and mild, golden ale, uh, is a flash in the pan or if this is a general general a genuine sorry cultural shift towards uh, a whole new generation realizing the importance of something then uh, that importance is is in cask beer but first let me introduce our panel sitting closest to me is mark wellsby from manchester's the run Brewery. I've got Laura Rangeley from Sheffield's Abbeydale Brewery, and then I've got Malcolm Downey, who's come all the way from uh, Fine Ales here in Scotland. He's travelled a, a long way. Um, so, before I um, start asking questions, uh, it'd be lovely for the three of you to introduce yourselves to the to the audience and those listening at home, uh, and tell them a little bit about yourself, your brewery, and the kind of beer you make. And uh, we'll we'll start with you, Mark, as you're sitting closest to me. Yeah, hello everybody. My name is Mark. I, I set up the Runaway Brewery eight years ago, almost to the day, um, and we make lots of keg beer, which is makes me pretty much uh, the interloper in the room. Thank you for inviting me. Um, uh, we have very recently started um, brewing some cask beer. Cask beer is something that I've always loved, um, but it's something which I'm sure we'll get onto as to the reasons why we didn't do it originally and why we are doing a little bit now. Um, we make a whole range of stuff. We're a tiny brewery. We're only five barrel, which to those of you that don't speak brewer, basically means enough to drown in, but probably you could drink it yourself in a month if you tried hard enough. Um, and we brew everything from Saison to Brown Ale to ESB, Pale and IPA, of course. Um, but, but a real broad range of stuff um, because we're tiny and we can do what we want. Ha. <laughs> Laura, why don't you tell us a little bit about what you do at Abbeydale? Hello. Uh, so um, I've been working at Abbeydale Brewery as their marketing manager for the last seven years, um, but the brewery is 26 years old. Um, so, yeah, based in Sheffield. It's always been one of the kind of larger breweries in, in Sheffield, I think similar size to what you've got here at Fine Ales. Um, so we brew about six to eight times a week on a 30 brewers barrel brew kit currently 70 percent of what we make goes into cask um i started at the brewery in 2014 and the year in the run-up to that it was a hundred percent cask uh, so there has been a relatively large shift but still um, heart and soul of what we make is uh, cask beer almost half of which is uh, moonshine which is a 4.3 percent pale ale um but then around that we do everything from best bitters I was hoping for a little bit of a way <laughs> um, to uh, you know stronger stouts, uh, big IPAs, and um, barrel-aged um, mixed fermentation beers as well. So, a little bit of everything, but mainly cask. Fantastic. And Malcolm, tell us a little bit about what you do here in the Glen. Hi, we get sunburned. Um, <laughs> I'm Malcolm. For those of you who haven't met me before, um, I've been at Fine Hills for 17 years. The brewery's been going 20, 21 years now. Again, back, like you said, when I, when I started here, there was virtually nothing but cask. As we've grown, the market has changed. Um, I almost credit Brewdog a lot with that, certainly up in Scotland, of introducing keg beers and slightly more non-mainstream <coughs> things. Uh, but still, we would, I would say we're probably about 40, 40, 40% cask beer. Over everything we do, small pack, draft, Jarl is 60% of what we do. Again, it's 3.8, <coughs> sessionable. Um, it's kind of, I don't know, with this little debate about golden ale or... Or blonde know, ale, yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. I think we've always described it as a hoppy... I can't remember, hoppy blonde, hoppy golden ale. It's a blonde, um, you describe it as yeah, a blonde ale. 
I have a theory. Oh, it's because golden ale is an, is an English style of beer and it's like, no, we don't want to call it. But yeah, bitters, bitters are an English style. Indeed, like yes. Yeah. We, we, we'd heavies and export and stuff like that up here, so... And Caspian, well, it's English, so you don't want that. <laughs> <laughs> yes, if you've never seen Aitken fonts, but <laughs> anyway. Indeed. So, yeah, glad to see you all here and have a great weekend. It's been, it's been good so far. Yeah. Um, the first question which I'll ask uh, to all three of you is, we have, it feels like since the pubs reopened in, in May 2021, there has been a, a shift in people drinking more cask beer. Uh, and certainly a younger generation may be dr drinking it for the first time in the way that it was intended. Lower ABV, low gravity beers in volume. And you go to the, you have one and you enjoy it and then you go, mm, I'll have another one of those rather than working their way across the bar. That certainly uh, rings true to my own experience. And, and you know, I've, I've drank more miles in the last six months than I probably have in the last six years. And, I, you know, and that, that's fascinating to me. Like, why suddenly, they've always been there. But Oh, sorry, sorry, I was going to say, is that because they're more available or because your, well, I your never, ideas have changed? I never used to see many miles on the bar and I'll go into a, a pub in Manchester and I'll have three on. Yeah. And they're all good. Um, but I'll start, start with you, Mark. What, what do you think has caused this? Do, well, do you think there is a, a shift towards cask and what do you think is, is causing this resurgence? Yes, I think... Um, Cask beer has had a little resurgence in, in the very re recent past. I suspect um, not being able to get hold of it for two years has something to do with that. Uh, bag in box just didn't cut the mustard, if you know what I mean. Um, but I also think people have... Uh, I don't want to put too much emphasis on the changes that the pandemic may or may not have caused. It's all speculation on my part, obviously. But I think people um, had got to a point where new, different um, innovation was so important to people, kind of chasing new things all the time. And that two-year period certainly made me and a lot of the people that I know in the, in the industry really reflect on what's important. Um, and I don't think, talking to Jules earlier from um, Hop Hideout, you know, she's never sold so many 24 packs of 4% whatever as she did uh, through that through that period and I think um, people to some I don't know whether it's nostalgia or whether it's just understanding what's important in life or whether it's realizing that chasing the next new thing is an endless cycle of kind of thanklessness in the end <laughs> that actually just finding things that you enjoy and like and championing excellence to a degree is something that I think people are I don't know, it's, it, it seems to me a more logical way to live, I suppose, in some respects. And also, that kind of lower strength, easygoing. A lot of people spent lockdown, well, the home deliveries that I did, I was turning up at midday on a, on a Tuesday, and people were having a really good time. <laughs> so I think probably that kind of endless Christmas thing that went on for a few months, certainly in Manchester, um, made people realise that actually whoa, 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 let's just slow down a little bit here um, slower pace of life um, wanting something a little bit less oh, I don't know dynamism is overrated in my opinion it should be, you know, something nice and steady that is kind of um, reassuring and something that you know really well something you know you're going to enjoy People want to savour those moments much more now than perhaps they did previously. Whereas before, they were always looking for something new. And I think this period has, has made us all be a bit introspective. And I, perhaps this is one of the outcomes of that. Yes, indeed. Laura, I'm very interested to hear your perspective. We've heard from a, from a brewer, but now from a marketer. Have you seen, you know, you're a very cask-focused brewery. Have you seen a resurgence in cask? Is it a thing? I think... You know, the, the question that you've put to us kind of overall here is, is cask back? And for us, it never really went anywhere. Mm. Um, obviously, COVID aside, that kind of threw a very awkward spanner in the works in terms of people being able to get hold of it. It's always been very uh, foremost in what we as a brewery do. But I think a little bit more widely in Sheffield, you know, Sheffield is a very stubborn little city mm. uh, that holds its cards quite close to its chest. Um, 
and you know we've got a tradition of um, breweries that made tanks and tanks and tanks full of things like miles and bitters, like stones and wards or wards as it's known if you're from the stones Stoneses, and uh, yeah so we've kind of always had that heritage there maybe and maybe being a little bit more reluctant to let go and also uh, i'm allowed to say this i'm from there a bit more tight than uh, other city, cities are uh, so that affordable element of a pint of something sessionable and low abv um i think has you know continued to be really important um, but I think as well, I would kind of agree with what, what Mark was saying. It's that pintability that was missing and the social nature of going for a beer as well. Uh, you know, I think a lot of people kind of realised that going to the pub is more than just what's in your glass. It's who you're with, it's the conversations you're having and the liquid is almost secondary. So you want something that's just easy to drink and that you don't have to be thinking about too much. Um, so... So yeah, I do think on the wider side of things that resurgence is true, but I also feel like it's not been as much of a shift for us in terms of something that's waned and is now coming. I don't know what the, what's the opposite of wane. Wax. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now waxing. <laughs> have, have, um, have you seen an uptick? Um, I think at the moment it's difficult to say. To be honest, things are still still slowly reverting to normal and are still quite unpredictable. Um, so it's it's difficult to say. Uh, I think certainly in terms of what we're making, um, we used to release a, a different pale ale um, every single week, uh, which obviously dropped off completely in um, during the pandemic. Since then, it's come back a little, but moonshine is still, you know, that's what people want to buy more of. You know, they're less interested in the one-off specials. They want that reliable um, beer that they can kind of keep on their bar and that people are already familiar with. Um, so that's, that side of things has seen a bit of a resurgence, along with Daily Bread, um, which was always sort of the little underdog. That Now would be a great time to share some of those around, Ian, if that's okay. Um, it's always been a little bit of an underdog of our core range. Um, but... I definitely seeing a lot more love for it in recent months um, which is really nice to see because it's one of my favourites I'm just sad we didn't have brown daily bread t-shirts for me to have worn today I, I would like a brown daily bread t-shirt I'm very fond of that beer uh, Malk you're very dependent on a, on a certain beer here, Jarl. It's, it's a huge part of your, your production. But, you, you know, you also... You know, I had a lovely pint of uh, Vital Spark yep. yesterday, which uh, is kind of like a mild, and it? it's, a, it's a dark ale. It's been called everything from... Oh, yeah. It's one of these things that's not a stout, it's not a port, or it's not... It's a hoppy, dark beer. Um, I have to say, that among the, the brewers, it's probably one of our favourite beers that we produce, but we produce tiny amounts of it. That's kind of going back to what Laura was saying. For us, we are still quite cask focused. A lot of people don't even associate us with keg beers or the Origins Project or anything like that. It's we make Jarl and that's it. Um, and speaking to folk out in the trade, again, people want something that's going to, it's going to be reliable, it's going to turn up, it's going to behave itself, and it's going to be sold. And you can just keep doing that week after week after week. Um, as to whether I've seen, I don't know that we've seen an uptick in sales. Some weeks it's mad, next week it's, it's flat. This, this, the things are still, still very much all over the place. Direct deliveries are kind of evening out now, but like pallet customers got literally got a, this morning I was building an order to go out to Italy, which includes cask. Um, I think one of our customers might lap us over there. Um, so... For us, it's always been a big part of what we do. Um, one thing that's been noticeable, I don't know if you've seen it, there's definitely been some customers shifted from 18s to 9s, and others have gone from 9s to pins. So the, the shift in, sorry, in container sizes has been noticeable. Some have bounced back to the bigger sizes. Others are quite liking the flexibility of something a bit smaller. And, I mean, an 18 weighs 100 kilos. They're not, you know, they're not, <laughs> they're not for the faint-hearted, but... Indeed. So, Nate, so we're talking about uh, cask sizes. So, yeah, the sorry. most common size of cask is a is a firkin, a nine gallon cask. But 
pubs that do particularly high volume uh, will do uh, Kilderkins, uh, which are 18 gallons, and that's about 140 pints you can get out of them. Yeah, it's um, a lot of beer to get drunk. Yes, it's a lot of beer. Small window. And, uh, and it's, a, it's not a great task to having to move, move them around either. Uh, Just while we're on cast sizes, yeah. can I quickly interject to say the irony that we're giving you all cans today <laughs> whilst talking about cask beer I isn't would, lost on me. I was so, just going to say, think of them as little casks. I was going to say... Uh, a little uh, micro cask. Has uh, Moore not trademarked that? <laughs> no, they... Thank you. For us. Cheers. Your health, people. Uh, for Cheers, us, everyone. Uh, I think it's that time of the day. It's the uh, afternoon now. Uh, Cheers. Cheers, guys. Cheers. To little casks. <laughs> yeah, I mean, one thing we did, uh, noticed during lockdown, mini casks of the five liters for home delivery, that went mad. Hang on a second, guys, at the back. We'll ask, ask you to keep it down, or I'll eject you from the premises. I've got uh, Ian Smith from Fine Ales. Plenty of time for chat. After <laughs> he, he, will, he will evict you. Now, there's plenty of time for chat uh, at, the, at the end of the session, and there will be... A to ask questions to the panel. I want to come to you, Mark, now, because you've only just recently started making uh, cask beer. So what changed? Why now? I, I kind of feel like we always made cask beer, really, um, because we keg condition and we bottle condition. So what we set out to do back in 2014 was to, was to effectively modernise uh, something that I loved, which was cast beer. But th there were always problems um, in terms of perhaps marketing it correctly. Certainly where I grew up in the East Midlands, um, cast beer was, was very, uh, very much hit and miss, incredibly hit and miss. I now live in Manchester, as, as you do, where that is a much rarer phenomenon. You can usually rely on publicans looking after beer to the point at which it is nine times out of ten absolutely delicious where I grew up you were you know, it's more like two in ten so perhaps where, where did you grow up for a bit of context uh, Northamptonshire okay rural Northamptonshire <laughs> Northampton's crew <laughs> yeah absolutely um, it's an awful place for beer absolutely terrible um, so yeah well, absolutely so I think um, perhaps some of that baggage came with me but back in 2014 um, we were trying to find ways, I, I guess, to try and revitalise stuff that we felt was important and that was struggling. So um, pubs were, you know, if you looked on the news, there'd always be a story about the number of pubs that had closed this year and that kind of stuff. And it, it felt to me as if part of the issue was that beer wasn't being presented in the way that appealed to a, to a broader audience. So what we... So when I say that I feel like we've been making cast beer since day dot, that's not strictly true. But what I mean is we use, we use exactly the same methods, uh, but we package it into a slightly different format to be served colder, slightly fizzier, but it is still conditioned using yeast in the natural way and all that kind of stuff. Um, trying to get that message across to camera was an interesting... Uh, <laughs> I mean, I've got hours on that if you want it. But nonetheless, we've got to a point where I suppose we... I, I certainly feel like we, that modernisation that was required, I think, in terms of beer, has actually happened. Um, so to a large degree, it felt kind of natural progression for us to then take some of the lessons we've learned making slightly more contemporary versions of classic styles of beer... Um, and we've been begged for cask ale since we started. I mean, we were told we would fail within three months if we didn't do cask and all this kind of stuff. It wasn't, it wasn't a kind of mission from the Lord to, to, you know, try and take over the world with this filthy, fizzy nonsense. It was, it was absolutely a way for us to try and make traditional beer appeal to a broader audience, which for me is essential if you want to try and preserve our beer traditions. So... Why have we started actually putting it into, into casks? Um, I mean, there's, there's, there's some pragmatic reasons in here. Um, you know, we have to shift some volume now. One, the way to shift volume in Manchester is to make cask beer. It always has been. We've, we've kind of been doing it our way. Um, 
because we believe in it and we are continuing to do that. But post-pandemic, it was absolutely critical for us to try and sell some beer. Um, we also got to a stage where um, the, the beer that we make regularly, cask beer we make regularly, is with a, a, a bar called Beer Moth, Cafe Beer Moth in central Manchester, who we have got a really good working relationship with and have developed it, that over the years with them. We don't have any of our own pubs, no, none of our own outlets. The joy of keg beer is, to some degree, you're kind of protecting yourself from bad sellermanship, if you like. Um, landlords who perhaps don't don't um, don't care is too much, but don't have the attention to detail that Cascale perhaps deserves and needs. So for us, working with someone like Beermoth gave us the opportunity to develop a beer in uh, genuine collaboration with them um, to test the water for us. We didn't know how to make Cascale. We knew how to make nice tasting beer, but making cask beer is a, is a different art form. Uh, and it does require um, changes to recipes and it does require an attention to detail in different ways. So it, it gave us the chance to really explore that. And having kind of, in my, in my own mind, won this battle of um, good quality, um, traditionally made modern British beer in keg becoming acceptable, the next obvious logical step for us was to then say, okay, cool, what can we bring from that, from what we've learned doing that, into making really, really good cask beer? So, yeah, we only do it with one venue, which allows us the opportunity to learn. It means we can trust all of the dispense, the cellaring, all of that stuff, and it's always presented as well as it can be, which for a tiny brewery is critical, because, you know, if, we, if, if someone experiences our beer in a pub and it's not good, most of the time, that backlash will come to the brewery straight away. Not, not to necessarily to the fact that the publican may or may not be as thorough as they could be in the cellar. We knew with Beer Moth that we'd be okay with that. So it's a first step for us. We are moving to Stockport this year, so we're going to have to do a lot more. There's no way you can do a keg bar in Stockport. No, no. I was going to say that's an exclusive, but no, it's not an exclusive. <laughs> John Clark has already, of uh, Stockport Camera, has already broken that news in the opening Times magazine. It was quite a splash. <laughs> yes. Double, double pager. Um, I, I think it's a great thing you're making cast beer, and if you do make it to Manchester, and, and you definitely should head to Cafe Beer Moth, uh, you'll be able to try. Uh, what's the name of the beer that you, that you usually make? It's Stone's called Stone's Throw. Throw. It's actually on the bar here this weekend. Oh, it was? I think, it, I think it's gone. It flew out, guys. It was so good. Um, <laughs> we did actually bring three casks. Uh, I think there's a table beer on at the moment. Table's on at the moment. It's tasting pretty nice. And it's made with a uh, fake yeast. So, you know, this isn't traditional cask beer stuff. This is, as I say, bringing some of the ideas from more experimental, contemporary craft, if you want to call it craft, but, but um, beer making and applying it to, um, to traditional uh, beer making methods and, and, and um, dispense, which for me is an interesting thing that perhaps... It's been going on in the, um, certainly for a little while. We're by no means the first brewery to, to start doing it. But for me, that's exciting as a brewer. Laura, what's the importance uh, for you as a, uh, you know, working for a brewery that's been making cast beer for a long time to see uh, breweries like Runaway come in? Is, is it a benefit to have that bit of extra competition in the category if, it, if it's good for the quality? Or is there a lack of room on the bar for... for new cask brands i think when done well there's space for you know like you exactly as you mentioned i think there is you know there's never going to be enough fantastic cask beer in my mind um you know and the thing is it does require that commitment both on the part of the brewery um in terms of the recipe they're crafting and um how they're brewing it and you know, making sure it's well conditioned and all that kind of thing, but making sure that that's done at the brewery stage as well as in the pub. And I think for me, good cask beer really does need both. Um, and that's why I think, you know, it, especially before my time as a drinker, really, but, you know, had um, we've had places with really bad reputations for that kind of thing. And it takes a while to build back trust. 
um, and for venues who, you know, maybe had somebody who didn't care um, and then they've moved on and you've got somebody else in, it takes a long time for that to be built back up and, um, yeah, it's, it does take more effort, I think, but it's something that's well worth it when it's done right. Something that's interesting you said earlier is you were doing a lot of single hot beers, um, uh, but now in cask, but now you're focusing more on what you would call your, I guess, your core range. Yeah. Moonshine and, and Daily Bread and a few others. He, is Heathen another one of them? Yeah. Yeah. So what, what do you think is driving that? And do you think there is, what, where's the room to experiment in, in cask? I think the room, the room to experiment is still there, but I think for people who can do that on a smaller scale, it's obviously more achievable. Um, we're certainly a brewery that, whilst we do now make some beers for keg only, we wouldn't shy away from doing them in cask at all. Um, you know, even some of the uh, Funk Dungeon stuff, which is our mixed fermentation project, if we had a venue that said we want a cask of that, would be like, okay. <laughs> you know, it needs to be somewhere that, again, we'd trust to look after it and do it right, but we wouldn't say no to that kind of request. Um, and I think that there's still a lot of fun to be had in cast beer as well. You know, I think some of these styles are commonly considered the more boring styles of beer, and that's, that's just not the case at all as far as I'm concerned. Um, you know, it's making sure that they're done well, given a little bit of respect back, and um, that people are, you know, enjoying drinking them. That, you saying that reminds me of something, a conversation I had with Jay Krause at, at Cloudwater Brewery when he made their brown ale uh, because he said he wanted to try and make the most, and this is a true quote, the most boring beer he could. And I'm like, <laughs> what? It's like, that's the, that's the whole point of a brown ale. Like you don't, you, it's just nice and you don't think about it. You sat with friends and then your pint's empty, you go and get another one. And that's, that's the, yeah. the challenge. Well, the, um, the other beer that... So think half of you will have daily bread which is from our core range the other half will have um, restoration ESB um, so the restoration series changes recipe each time but the idea is to kind of revive or bring back a, a beer style that we might not um, attempt as commonly uh, this is actually the first ever ESB Abbeydale have made um, and because uh, we were kind of saying like a modern uh, rendition of a classic style so uh, the sales team are like oh what's what are we are we going to put some like massive american hops in it and it's jim who's actually sat over there and he was like no i just want to make a good esb like it doesn't need messing around with um you know but that in it's but for us that is the experiment and it's it's doing justice to a beer style that we haven't attempted before. We've done a table beer in the series. Um, some of us, me, really want to do a mild in this series. Uh, but um, there isn't much, you know, people, the rest of the team have a feeling that people don't want it, and especially now there's so many around, but we've never ever made one. So for, for me and for our brew team, that would be a really exciting thing to do. But again, we, we'd want to just make a mild, you know. Mm. I, f I feel stop. like we're at a um, point where yeah. brewers are perhaps making, being a bit more assertive and actually saying, we're going to make stuff that we want to make. Yeah, and actually, rather than, this is the point you were making earlier, Malcolm. It's a good about, job Malcolm wants to make Yarl then. <laughs> <laughs> Loves it. Cannot get enough of it. It's, yeah, I mean, for me it is a nice beer, but it, to be quite blunt about it, it pays, the wage, it pays the wages. It keeps it going and it allows us to play around and do other things and it going completely off the, the cask mild and um, bitters and stuff the Origins project without Jarl I don't really think the Origins project would, would be around because it, Jarl gives us the freedom to experiment and be able to play around and do another uh, yeah. do slightly more interesting things Interesting fact about ESB, it used to be a trademark owned by Fuller's, which uh, Asahi let lapse. So um, any brewers in the room, go nuts, call your beer an ESB. They can't do anything about it anymore. It's a good thing. Um, we, we, the next restoration is, um, it's a steam beer, but we're not allowed to call it a steam beer. No. So it's a golden steam ale. Oh. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Malcolm, how do you feel about... Um, 
breweries like like Mark entering the category, but then there's there's larger keg and can focused breweries. I mentioned Cloudwater, Verdant, North, Dea, some of the big uh, breweries to have emerged in the last five or ten years. Cask has become a thing uh, for them and quite central because they need to sell some beer, obviously, like everyone else. Uh, how, do, as, as a brewery that's been making casks for much longer, uh, like. Does that make you feel like you need to raise your game, or do you welcome the competition uh, to to help the sector um, find a new audience? How do you feel about that? Yeah, I'd absolutely echo that. It's it, you you touched on it as well. It's it's good because it's drawing more people in, which is going to keep the market buoyant. Without wishing to be rude, quite a lot of Caspio drinkers are slightly older. I mean, I'm 45. I'm older than quite a few people <laughs> without younger people coming through your 18, 20 25 year olds how long, how sustainable is it having the, you mentioned sort of Verdant, Dea, like, if you like the cool kids in the block bringing them in, they bring a completely different audience which is younger, more vibrant more enthusiastic I think mm. and some of them have made better beer than, beers than others I think, in my opinion but they're all learning. They're always looking for its continual development, its continual improvement. And we, like uh, yourselves, we did a lot of specials pre-pandemic. And it was getting to the point of, why? Why are we doing this? We're just throwing a new beer a week out. And we're not, as a brewer, as a brew team, we're not learning anything from it. Because mm. it's got to be something different. It's got to be something new. It's got to be this. It's got to be this. Trenching back in and really offering less beers, but I think the quality has gone up because we are more focused on mm-hmm. what we're doing. Um, on the, the slight tangent of the, the single hop stuff, our second biggest brand after Jarl is the Everyone Loves series, which constantly changes. But it's, again, it's a 3.8 pale, a lot more hoppy than Jarl. It's, it's dry hops, so there's, there's more intense flavours. But that's gone from being a one-off special to, oh, we'll do that one again with a different hop because that worked. It's now kind of our second biggest brand in cask. So it's, yeah, that's something that's kind of come out of a, a little bit of experimentation to, and tweaking and it, it's, it's really worked. So the market, I, I see guys like yourself coming in. It's, it's great. I mean, apart from the fact if I go to the pub, I quite like trying different beers as well. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> did, did you ever come across reluctant scooper simon ah uh, yes i yeah. met i met him once before he before he sadly passed uh, away yes that, that was his kind of this is a guy who was a blogger and it was called the reluctant scooper do you go out and tick a new beer every time or do you just go back for the nice comfort and pint that you know you're gonna love and it was quite an interesting i had quite a few interesting chats with him about it and it was just like fall back on i know that's going to be good i'll have five bites of that it's great I think that's that's the thing. That's certainly um, my shift in, in drinking is like I want to go out and find something reliable rather than new and exciting. I, I, I want I want a, something that puts a big smile on my face, exactly but also that, yeah. helps me ease into that sort of you know relaxing part yeah. of the day. And you know, not just cast, but pubs feel like they've become. I've always loved pubs, but now um, they feel more important to me. Yeah. And this kind of ties into what I want to talk about next is is uh, I think he said craft beer then. <laughs> uh, cast cask beer as a as a cultural thing I had a conversation with a food writer recently about how you know when you talk about um, British food culture you think you talk about you know steak and kidney pie fish and chips all the usual suspects roast dinners but like for me cask ale is actually culturally probably the most important food stuff we make if you think about beer as a, as a you know a f- factory-made food product really takes the romance, rom- romanticism out of it, but but that's what it is. But it's 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 every it's in thousands of pubs across hundreds of thousands of handfuls, uh, drank by millions of people every day, and people are travelling. You know, speak to an American about what they want to do when they come to London. I've tried to take them to craft beer bars and and you know out for IPAs, brewery taverns. Like, no, I want to go to ye old Cheshire Cheese, yep. <laughs> and I'm like, what? It's like, yeah, I really want to drink drink some Sam Smith's bitter from a wooden cask and like that's well that's a great starting point because it's only better from there but (laughs) I'll be getting a C&D from Humphrey it's all right (laughs) but how do you how do you feel 
Is there a shift, Mark, uh, in thinking about cask? Is this maybe why you're making it? Do you, do you value it as uh, something that's culturally important, or is it just something that's, not, that's nice to drink? No, I think it is culturally important. Um, it, I, as I've kind of mentioned earlier, it, the, the, the way in which it's made was something that very much directly inspired the way in which we make more modern beer, I suppose. And, you know, we, look, we took cask beer as the starting point for how we make keg beer, which I'm sure is not what you'd be taught if you went to uh, Harriet Watt uh, to learn brewing. They're not going to say, oh, yeah, if you're going to make some nice keg beer, you should start with a really, um, really traditional approach to beer making. I think... Um, that's a niche, niche gag for you there, Malk. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I, um, the American thing's interesting to me. I think there's a lot of British brewers who've been looking to America for inspiration for a while. And this reverence with which people from outside of the UK kind of look at and hold cask beer, that's, that is the UK as far as beer drinkers from Belgium or America or the rest of the world. That's what British beer is. So that's why it was important for me to be trying to find a way to modern what I saw as modernising it because I felt like that tradition was, was critical to a part of our psyche, if you like, mm. to our pub culture, to our beer culture. That's what British beer is. That's why we keg condition our beer, which, by the way, is a mental thing to do. Nobody does that. It's just a thankless task. But for me, it was critical because we're, 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 we're looking back at our heritage, we're looking back at the way that beer has been made for centuries and finding a way to make that appeal to a slightly more modern or different audience. That doesn't mean that everyone should be doing that. You know, it wasn't like I'm trying to come up with a way that all breweries should now behave. It was just a way for us to do something towards that end game, towards that goal of trying to maintain... I mean, sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm jumping ahead of my head. You can, I'm not finishing a sentence. Um, if camera were to be invented today, I feel like I'm camera bashing now. Sorry, camera. Um, you know, they were really pro progressive organisation back in the 70s. And over time, as the membership has grown more mature, it's a nice way of putting it, um, we, you know, I think perhaps change is, is, is more difficult. But if camera were to be invented now, what they, I think, would be saying is we need to find ways to promote that traditional way of making beer. Uh, and that's essentially what we started off trying to do. So I've already lost my train of thought and the question. It's all right. I'm going to take this to the audience. I want to see a show of hands. Who's a camera member? Okay, that's interesting. That's, so it's only about a quarter of the room. Who joined in the last two years? Oh, so you're, you, you've all been there for a while. So I joined uh, two years ago. I'm, I'm a new... Ca I used to be very anti-camera, but actually um, I've got to know them quite well. I've done some work for them. And internally at head office, they're doing a lot of hard work to try and uh, revitalise this sector. It's, it's, it's quite fascinating. Do you know what? I've started going to camera beer festivals, um, like, proper, like proper traditional old school ones. I'm really looking forward to Stockport Beer Festival. I went to Oldham Beer Festival. And that, absolutely fantastic it's it's that they are very different to a, to a, a craft beer festival but culturally i, I think I, I, I get it it's taken me it's taken me uh, 10 years of writing about beer to go actually this is this is hugely important kind of ties into my next question and that is you know mark you might want to answer this in a bit because um, i asked it to jamie when i uh, the md of fine ales this morning about because next year the tax rules change, but uh, John Keeling at Fuller's actually has been um, pushing CBA to campaign for a, a, a tax uh, reduction for cask beer. Um, do you feel, Laura, that cask uh, should be seen as a culturally important thing and, and then get a, its own tax bracket? How, how would that affect what you do at Abbeydale? I personally don't think it should be regarded as different to other beer because I think that would put restrictions in place that many breweries would find incredibly difficult to work with and we do not need any more hoops <laughs> to jump through. Um, in terms of whether Caspier should be viewed as culturally significant, I definitely think it should. Um, I touched on earlier about Sheffield um, having a, its own particular brewing history um, and... Um, you know, there have been studies. Pete Brown uh, did a recent study on Sheffield and 
found it to have the most uh, as a region uh, the most num the highest proportion of breweries per person outside of London um, so so yeah, it's the Sheffield and District region it's called so it covers a teeny weeny bit of Derbyshire and then kind of Barnsley Rotherham and and the those outskirts um, but yeah the, the history there is huge and as given so much to beer as a whole um abbeydale is actually now the oldest brewery in sheffield which is due to the incredibly sad reason that a few weeks ago uh, kellam island brewery who were the previous oldest brewery um have announced that they're closing and that is culturally culturally that is an enormous loss for the beer scene um you know there are so many too many brewers to mention have come out of Kelm Island. Abbeydale's founder, Pat, being just one of them. Uh, but, you know, you can trace roots that have kind of spread out from Kelm Island across to America and throughout pretty much all of uh, British brewing. Um, so, you know, it, it is something that, that that knowledge that is passed on via the making of cast beer is in itself really crucial. Um, and, you know, if that leads on to breweries that do something that isn't cask, great. But, you know, they've got that grounding somewhere and, um, yeah, how it should be kind of dealt with and what kind of privileges it should be given, I don't have the answer to. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I think putting extra boundaries in breweries' ways to encourage cast production, for me, wouldn't be the way forward. I think it would probably be counterproductive because, as you say, it's, it's a busy enough job. There's enough restrictions and legalese. If you put someone else there, folk are just going to go, nah. I'm not going to bother with that because it's just going to make my life more awkward. How do you feel, Malcolm, about Cask as a, a cultural institution here in Scotland? You know, there, you know, we re this week on on Pellicle we published a piece uh, by Adam uh, Turner who's sat there. Uh, hello, um, uh, about the State Bar, and it, you know, you, you can find some great Cask pubs, but yeah. if you get up towards the Highland Black Arbury way, you you don't see. Uh, a lot of cask up there, do you? No, what? rural Aberdeenshire was kind of the same. It was, I mean, I, I can vividly remember my first pint of cask beer. Uh, and my uncle picked us up off the train in, in Edinburgh one time. I must have been about 15, maybe. Um, and he was meeting one of his mates. Went out, back, out the back of Waverley into the pub. Sit there, drink that, shut up. <laughs> and that was Ian Cook, Bart Neil. And it's gone now, but every time I saw that, I had a pint of that. And just was transported back to the malt shovel, however many years before. Mm. So it is there is a very very strong sense of culture there. Growing up in the northeast, for me it was lager, Guinness, export, heavy cider. There was no in my hometown. There was I think at one point it was maybe 20, 20 pubs, and one of them sold cask beer, and it wasn't always great. Moving to Edinburgh for university, wow. <laughs> I mean, it's now you got to go back up, and Aberdeen has become quite a bit of a beer mecca. There's a lot of really good bars, good breweries. You've got Fierce, you've got... Well, breweries. Other breweries. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's like that then, isn't it? <laughs> no, I mean, I... 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 I I'm not going to touch that subject. It's, yeah. not, it's, not, it's not for this. It's, it's, a, it's a debate for us. Later. I don't want to get a cease and desist letter. Another one. You're already, you're already one. getting Let's one from Humphrey. <laughs> no, it's... Uh, for me, seeing these... Going back up north again and seeing more bars selling it, more pubs selling it, chipping it to Italy. We were exporting cast to America as well. As you say, people come to the UK and they want fish and chips and they want cask beer. Mm. How... We capitalise on how we capitalise on that. Um, I would not say like, like any sort of. If we if we start looking at a legal definition, it will become a legal definition. We will have to do this, and it'll hamstring what we can actually do. A protected origin, something like that. But again, how do you do? The ingredients have to come from a certain area. Mm. Do how. How does it work? Is it regional? Is it UK specific? Is it... Yeah. Appalachian Controle de Cascale. Ah! There we go. Yeah. I've been thinking about go. that you, one. You've got that already. <laughs> you got it sewn up. Um, something I want to touch on um, before I open the floor up to you folks is um, price. Because... There's a challenge with, with cask in that it is essentially a, 
handmade premium artisanal product but there is an expectation that it, it, it sits at a good price at, uh, at the bar and you know I'm sat with with uh, three folks brewing in the north so cat you know Sheffield especially cask is is expected to be cheap I had a pint of red willow reckless in Shakespeare's that was three pounds and in the center of Manchester I paid four pound forty that's you know it's only a, f- a few miles and it's a huge gulf in price mark what's what's the reason you feel that, that cask is is driven down on price and and how do we but you know is premiumization the answer no probably not um oh god that's a huge question i think i mean there's cultural reasons for it i think there's um there's huge tradition for it i mean this is one of the things about beer it's meant to be accessible so gone are the days when everyone pours out of the same factory and goes to the same pub and drinks the same beer over and over again we do have to recognize that that way of drinking has disappeared to some degree um, and I think there is a, a lot of what what we're talking around about uh, around price is um, attached to historical um, associations with beer and what beer is and, and cask or not cask you know beer is supposed to be something that anybody can go and have a couple of beers you know uh, so when you go I've seen a lot on social media lately of people going to London and paying six, seven pounds for a cask pint. Yeah. And they're freaking out. Um, and I understand that. I absolutely understand that. Uh, and if we were all making 3.5% pale ales, then that would, you know, that, that, there is... Um, I, w- I would understand that. But a lot of, a lot of cask beer these days... Um, a lot of beer these days. You know, the, the amount of... The costs associated with making it, it's not as if... You can come and have a look at my Skoda, you know. <laughs> Brewers are not making big money here. Um, There's definite love for the job. It is, the it absolutely yeah. it is. But at the same time, if you can't make enough money to pay your staff, then you don't operate anymore. Yeah. Um, I feel like we're going to get into a wider conversation about economics and, and you know, I, the cost of living generally, which is at the moment is horrific. But I, I do... I think there was certainly four or five years ago there, were, there was a moment where a lot of the kind of successful crafty types I'm saying that like I'm definitely not one of them um, decided not to make cask beer anymore. Yeah. I think you know, Buxton and Magic Rock and there was a few that basically said look you know it's either going to cost you 150 quid a, a nine or we're not doing it. Yeah. Um, because they got to the point where the, that race to the bottom mentality um, They'd had enough of it, and because their reputations were, they were able to charge more for it, and as a result, people liked the beer, they paid it. Do I want cask beer or beer generally to be a premium product? No, I don't think that's the way to go. I don't want to make it um, exclusive. For me, it needs to be inclusive. Beer generally needs to be inclusive. Um, Who has control over that pricing? There's discussions we could have around that. Um, how much tax are we all paying essentially on every single pint that we buy it's such a complicated issue Um, I think what it has one thing it has made brewers do uh, is try to find ways to get their beer to people directly because they can cut out those middle men if you like which essentially means publicans which to me is a is a is a bit of a disaster because pubs for me are, are a critical part of this chain um, but but I understand why they're doing it because they're able to control price and therefore make the margin they need to and all that kind of stuff. So well, I do feel like we're in a moment of flux around price. Mm. Um, but having not made cask beer for the last eight years, I think probably you two have better answers <laughs> than I will well, around price. I was just going to touch. You mentioned Cloudwater and Jade doing the brown ale. I was in Leeds when they launched that. It's five pounds a pint. Yeah, can I have two, please? It's five pounds a pint. Can I have two, please? Here's ten pound note. It's five pounds a pint. Can I have two, please? <laughs> the the barmer almost had to say, "This is quite expensive." It's like, take my money, give me my beer, and it's yeah, five or five or a pint because that that would have been about. It's interesting from my perspective, moving from 
London, where cask is a lottery anyway, and there's a lot of, uh, of chain pubs that look like normal pubs, that, where, where cask is not the centre of yeah. the priority, but there are a, a handful of true gems. But having moved to the northwest, it's rare that I walk into a pub that the, the glass isn't perfectly clean, which is a huge part of it, uh, and getting all that lovely lacing. Um, and But the quality and the condition of the beer is, is much higher. But I look around, and I see everyone in the pub drinking it, whereas in London, you see one or two tables have a pint of cask. There seems to be parts of the UK where the cask is, is drank in greater volume, and it's the same places where it is cheaper. Laura, Sheffield is, is you know, one of the best places to go drinking cask beer because every pub is centred around it. What, what is that price point? Uh, how important is it to Sheffield? And why do you think it's, it's stuck there? Why can you still get a £3 pint uh, in, in that city? I think it possibly is turnover. You know, it's the places that are cheap, apart from the W word, uh, tend to be the places where the beer is the best. Um, you know, and they're able, they know that they can buy a cask and they're going to sell it all. Um, so that makes their margins easier to deal with. Um, and, uh, you know, I think um, you touched on it a little bit more, the kind of direct-to-consumer being a, somewhere where a brewery can make more money. But as we've already said earlier on, the only place you can get a cask pint is in a pub. So for me, um, whilst the price point is important, I think, um, like, for us we will charge what the beer is worth and we won't compromise. You know, there is a danger here, I think, that one of the challenges breweries are going to have to overcome as prices go up. Decisions will need to be made about do we put our prices up or do we compromise on our ingredients? And um, I know, uh, obviously, with Abbeydale being 26 years old, they've already gone through a period of inflation, um, you know, in the 90s. And... Pat just said, you know, everybody else is making cheaper beer. Can we chuck more hops in ours, please? Because then people know that when, when things do stabilise and settle down, who do they come to to get the tasty quality beer? The people who've been doing it all along. And we gained a lot of trust from customers then in that our beer had stayed consistently good throughout. Um, and we hadn't make, kind of taken those hits and made our beer less delicious. So that's kind of the position that we're, you know, arguably going to be in again. Everything's going up, but we're going to keep on doing what we're doing and chucking more hops in as Pat commands. <laughs> Malk, when are you going to switch uh, Yarl up to an exclusively English hot recipe to save money? <laughs> no. <laughs> no, it's interesting that we've been doing a lot more... The last couple of specials, we've uh, been using quite a lot more English hops. Um, it's kind of a... I was down at B-Rex in Liverpool in March, April, and Farham's at a... Farham's a hop merchant. The, one of the guys... They were doing a wee talk, and one of the guys... It was basically about the state of the British hop industry, which is not healthy. It's decreasing at a fairly massive rate of knots. And again, this is a very traditional industry very, very much rooted in the, the counties that it's in. And if we don't buy English hops, they're not going to be there for Henry to buy. The amount of hops being produced in the UK has halved uh, since the turn of the century. There's only 59 hop farms left in the UK now. Uh, we grow 1% of the world's hops. Uh, by comparison, the US grows 47% and Germany grows 38%. So it's an industry that needs protecting, definitely. Yeah. Cask is, is, is one of the ways that can yeah. be done. Yeah. yeah, because it does lend itself to more delicate, nuanced flavours, which, which you will get from... Um, British hops. And that comes back to the, the, the whole cultural importance of cask. It's not just about the beer that goes into the cask and the handful. It's, it's the about the farm, the farm and, and the whole process, itself. yeah. yeah. It's, it, uh, it, uh, it is absolutely inextricably linked. And you're right, the days of factory hooter goes, they all go to the pub, they all have ten pints, they all go home and do it day after day. Those days are gone. So you, there's got to be something to attract people into pubs. And, you know, you could, you, you've got a product in cask beer you can promote using local ingredients. There's a lot of breweries moving to buy in their own barley and getting it malted for them so they can say, right, this is the farmer that grew the barley. This is the farmer that grew the hops. And it's, I think one thing lockdown, we noticed there's a lot more localising. So there's, people are a lot more willing to support local 
breweries, bakeries, whatever, yeah. they're willing to pay a little bit more for something that they know is directly keeping you in a job and keeping you in a job and building, rebuilding communities. The pub, again, is the heart of a is, is the heart of so many communities. So it is all kind of part of a great big mixture that, if it gets right, will be brilliant. But if it goes wrong, it could go horribly wrong. That's a really gloomy note. <laughs> no, I, I thought it was a, a great point, and it's a lovely way where we can uh, segue into the uh, questions from the audience part. So if you have a question uh, for our panel, please raise your hand and I'll come to you with the microphone, and please direct it at your uh, panellist of, of choice. Thank you. Uh, it was just to everyone, um, I'm old and I like cask beer, simple. I go to a pub and... I immediately know which is cask and which is keg, but I also buy beer in off license. And cans, I don't know what they are. Can you tell me what a can of beer is? Is it cask or is it keg? And if it is either or the other, why isn't it on the ke on the can? It's an interesting question, like because you can get conditioned cans and not. Mark, do you you, you want to? Yeah, I can do a little bit on that. Um, there aren't very many breweries doing can conditioned beer. There are more breweries doing bottle-conditioned beer. Um, in theory, can-conditioned, bottle-conditioned beer is closer to cask beer because it's made in the same way. But the reality is that it, it's never quite ever going to be, just due to the volume and the type of package that you're putting the beer into, it's never, it's never a replacement for it. So I think the easy answer is, if you want cask beer, go to the pub. Which is, tra which is tragic, in which case I would suggest looking for breweries that advertise um, can-conditioned or bottle-conditioned beer, and that's as close as you will get. Any more questions? Yes, Lady in the Red Hat. Why are Britain growing less hops? Matt, this um, might be a good one for you. Yeah, it, the shift has been New World hops are the cool thing. All the, the big noise... Citra, Simcoe from America, Nelson Sauvon from New Zealand, they, because they create much bigger, punchier flavours, which sit better and are more exciting, that's what it's been. But now that the British hop industry is fighting, is fighting back, uh, there's a lot of uh, effort going on into breeding new varieties, which I think, I don't know... I always feel that people are a bit down in Fuggles, Goldings, the more traditional varieties, because they are subtle. I'm not one of these people that are, I like pint. I like several pints. I don't want someone that's just going to batter me across the head. I'm not going to have a lot of that. Um, I guess people just fell out of love with them because they ended up and we got associated with fairly bland, generic products. You want something a bit more exciting. Try that from America. Try that from... Um, New Zealand or Australia or um, even the German hop industry which is even more traditional and rooted, deeply rooted than the, the UK one has got a fantastic breeding programme and there's some weird and wonderful flavours coming out of, of German hops Slovenia's another one that's the same um, I think another reason might be that the grass is always greener that's not from this from here, so it's boring. That's something else. That's new and exciting. That's exactly what um, there's a woman, um, Ali Capper, who runs a farm, and it's kind of just promoting this is English hops. These are grown on your doorstep, and this is fighting back. And I, the industry will be saved. I'm very, very confident of it. But it's in a pretty scary state. <laughs> There, there are a couple of farms, um, Hukins Hops down in Kent and Brookhouse Hops in Herefordshire, who are leading the way. In a, the, the UK hop industry has been really dragging its heels on modern equipment, investing in yeah. new varieties, but packaging it. Like, um, British hops are very delicate. They bruise easily. Uh, and so getting machinery that uh, doesn't uh, bruise the hops and then they can package them and, and flush them with nitrogen so that when they're sealed, all that... Because essentially it's essential oils. It evaporates if you don't use them fresh enough or they're not processed properly. So there is investment from a couple of farms uh, who are kind of rocking the boat, really. Right. 
but it's in, it's, it's, we could do a whole other panel. Yeah. Join us next year in the Glen for yeah. the future of British hot farming. Mm. That's a great idea, actually. I'm going to yeah, write yeah. that one down. Um, we, we're, we're way over time, but I think we've got a couple more questions. I did see some hands. Yes? I feel like this question might be more appropriate for next year's uh, panel discussion, but uh, what do you think you could do to um, contribute to preserving this hop heritage in, in Britain? Yeah, I've got something on that. Um, because we make beer primarily, we haven't focused that heavily on traditional British styles. We do uh, ESP and one or two other things in keg, which is, I mean, can you even imagine? Um, however, we do also really like making things like Saison. So a traditional Belgian style of beer, not hop heavy, but hops are a critical part of that style. It's a really easy drinking style of beer. Um, it's something which perhaps, you know, if you're not necessarily lager focused, it provides us a, uh, an alternative to pale ale and IPA, but something which is so easy drinking in the same way that lager might be, for example, which British shops work in really, really well. So I think experimenting with styles from and, or at least taking inspiration from other places and then using British ingredients to make those styles of beer is something which is underexplored. Uh, and it's something that I think we could do a lot better at. Rather than just thinking British hops are only good for making best bitter or, or you know, we'll, we'll stick it in the stout because the hops don't really matter that much. We'll get the bitterness we need, but the rest of it doesn't really matter too much. Putting hops centre stage doesn't necessarily mean piling them in, in huge Sub volumes. Subtlety. Using that subtlety, floral characteristics, hedgerow characteristics. Um, oh, I'm back. I'm back. Um, uh, so, sorry, you've got become quite passionate about. I think using British ingredients to, um, to champion them and put them centre stage doesn't necessarily mean looking backwards. It can mean looking sideways or forwards, and I think more brewers need to look at that. And Saison in cask, by the way, delicious. So it doesn't have to just be, you know, keg beer all the way. Fantastic. Uh, one more question we've got time for. Yes. With the north-south divide, have fine ales thought about using the Cornish cheese, Jarlsberg, to make a lager? <laughs> no. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I think that's a great, great question to end on. Um, I actually have uh, one more question for each of the panellists. Sparklers. Yeah. Yes. You hesitated there. Yep. Yes. Oh, I meant to just put more emphasis on my yes. on my firm yes. That's a dis that is, that's decided. No northern bias here at all. <laughs> Thank you very much. Please give a huge round of applause to our panel. So there we go. That wraps up our panel discussions for FineFest 2022 and we'll be back in the Glen in June to host a whole new set of panel discussions. Don't forget to get your tickets from finefest.com and join us there. I also hope you enjoyed having a few more regular episodes in your podcast feeds. I'm interested in how that worked for you, so you can always drop me a line and give me a bit of feedback, whether it's about this podcast or anything we publish on the website. My email address is Matthew with two T's at pellicalmag.com. I'm always interested in hearing your feedback. I'm going to have a little bit of a break now, but I will be back in the middle of February with our next episode, which is a roundtable discussion I recorded at last year's Nottingham Craft Beer Week. And it's a real deep dive into the exciting Nottingham craft beer scene featuring a couple of brewery owners, a couple of bar owners. It's another really great discussion. Keep a lookout for that in a couple of weeks. I'll wrap it up there, but I want to say thanks again for listening. Thanks again to all of those subscribing for your support. And if you've just discovered the podcast, I hope you've enjoyed what you've heard so far. I'll be back soon. Until then, I've been Matthew Curtis. And you've been listening to the Pellicle Podcast. See you then. Bye.